Welcome to the Lola Community Podcast. In this podcast, we will have questions, quotes, and conversations between different people, and your host will be Pleasant Selecki. Thank you. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, guys. It's Pleasant. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It's really such a blessing and such a wonderful part of um, our community and the work to be able to do this with you. If you love our podcast, I'd appreciate if you would share it with a friend, write a review, share on social, um, really helping us spread the messages and the wisdom and the teachings of our lovely, beautiful, authentic community. You can also support the podcast financially right here on the Anchor app or in iTunes, and you can leave me a voice message. I'd love to hear your voice. Chime in, give me a comment or a question. Send our guests um, a question. Send Sailor for her meditations a question or a comment or feedback. We love, love, love hearing from you. Thanks so much for all your support. And uh, Om Shanti, peace to you all. Okay, hi everyone. Meg is back. Say hey, Meg. Hey, Meg. <laughs> this is our third. I, you've been on a few times. You're one of our most favorite guests. I think, the, I think this is my second. That's it? I don't know. Um, so our conversation today is around anxiety. And one of the reasons why I feel very motivated um, to have a series, so I'm going to talk to Meg, I'm going to talk to a few women in our community who've had lifelong anxiety and get their perspective. I have uh, a few talks scheduled with just a variety of professionals who work with people who have anxiety um, because I really want to have a holistic framework for people. I want them to hear multiple topics and how they're presented and how it can be sort of different for different lives and people. And I think it's an epidemic crisis because pretty much everybody I know is suffering from it in some way or their children or their spouse. Seems to be touching everybody. And I can speak about it from an Ayurvedic perspective, um, but I want to do it like in dialogue with someone. So much more interesting. So... um, why don't you give us another, give us an introduction of yourself again for those who didn't listen to the past episodes and what your current level of understanding and experience is. Okay, so I am Megan Leahy. I am a good friend of Pleasance's, which is the most important thing you need to know. We live very close to each other, which is so much fun. And I am a parent coach, which is a real job here in Washington, DC. I help people all over the world. Um, And I am a writer for the Washington Post. Call them out today, kids in tech, our favorite topic. Uh, Anxiety is a really great topic. I come from a family where I think there are some undiagnosed anxious people. I think that I might have been a little anxious growing up, but I was caught in a drive-by shooting in college and started having panic attacks. Um, And of course, I ignored that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't until I had to, I couldn't spend nights alone 
after that. And luckily I was already with my husband at that point and I was just lucky enough to marry him. Maybe I just stayed with him so I wouldn't have panic attacks, who knows. And, <laughs> and so I, uh, it wasn't until I had to start sleeping apart from him regularly that I went to my doctor and I was like, so now can I just take Xanax every night? And she was like, uh, no, that's not a sustainable way to manage your anxiety. So I, I, I did start a medication then, which helped. Uh, I do Celexa, which I love. It's okay. great. And then I also take the antidepressant Bupropion, which is a nice, uh, Bupropion and Celexa are good friends. They work well together. They're, they're known as meds that help each other. So that's an antidepressant, um, which uh, Bupropion, they also think works on the anxiety issue too. So I think that I was born as Dr. Neufeld, who's my mentor and my main teacher. I think I was born jangly nerved, um, just more sensitive to stimulus and the world around me, more sensitive to other people's emotions. And, um, you know, the thing that about anxiety is that they say if it's a specific a thing that you're worried about, it's not anxiety <laughs> because you're worried about that thing. That's a, that's a concrete worry. Um, anxiety was described to me by Neufeld as worry without eyes. It is a persistent, jangly nerved feeling. It is a unease in the stomach and in the body. It is a racing of thoughts. Um, and so if you say, I'm afraid of bridges, we don't say I'm anxious about bridges. Mm -hmm. You have a fear mm -hmm. and it's a bridge. And while you may not fall off the bridge, there is some logic to it. But people that wake up and live with chronic anxiety um, often just have a persistent feeling of unease. We may then place it especially children on different issues. It's school, it's the teacher, it's this friendship, it's this test. But a lot of times, and what parents find is that they try to attack that problem to only find the anxiety jumps to the next topic. So it's kind of like the anxiety just can latch on to any other thing. Right. So if the kid is actually worried about a test and then you give them study skills and they're not worried, we wouldn't say that kid has an anxiety issue. Mm -hmm. They may have a persistent insecurity or neuroses around test taking or their ability, but it wouldn't really tick the box in the DSM statistical manual for an anxiety disorder. Right. So. I think anxiety is a big word. I think we, everyone says they have it. Mm -hmm. I think everyone says everyone else has it. Mm -hmm. I think that, that there is a big difference between children and adults who are just born more sensitive and are more, uh, just uh, more sensitive and we pathologize it and call it anxiety. Yes, 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 that we do. And the same with, with parts of depression yes. and all of this amazing 
like all these amazing new studies and experiences and conversations and books um, that I think we've, I, here's my guess. Cur here's my current level of understanding. In the past, we thought there were specific humans who suffered and we gave them labels and meds and therapy to fix it. And the more digging that we're doing, we're realizing that there's so much more in the common human experience that falls on a depressed or anxious scale and spectrum that all of us experience some degree of at some point. And so we're sort of in this really interesting place where some of the tightness around the labels and the diagnosis and the, and the way that we've thought about some of these ways of being as mental illness are actually part of mental wellness and part of being human and releasing some of the stigma, like the societal issues around it, the labeling. And the more that we're being open, we're realizing how much more part of this is being human. And there's extremes. Of course, there's areas where, because the thing that was so interesting of what you just shared was like, you had this sort of set personality, and then you experienced a trauma that of course would make you feel more uh, aware and anxious of the preciousness of life and the fear. Well, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say I had any preciousness of life issues it became a cellular thing yeah it was so unconscious to me yeah right um and it was so i was so not mind body connected totally so i was 18 or 19 i was drinking heavily i don't think i was smoking a lot of pot then i tried to like ease off but i was drinking Actually, I wasn't drinking that much for a college kid. So what does that mean? Like three days a week? I don't know. It depends on what you're... I mean, shit, in the early 90s, right? So, um, but either way, let's just say that in the, in the mid-90s, right, we were still like doing snack wells and just sitting on stair steppers. We weren't exactly aware mm -hmm. yet, right? right? Modern, regular American at that point of how we connected. So I just dealt with these panic attacks in, in terms of just self-medicating either through depressants like alcohol or with a person like my then soon-to-be husband. So I was not aware of the preciousness of life. I didn't even access that level of vulnerability. What I'm saying is when things happen that show us that we in a minute like that everything could be lost that so in buddhism the the root fear that everybody has of death you may not have that language but, but that's, yeah. that's what we get afraid that's what we're afraid of is dying if we're afraid of being shot or we're afraid of a disease we're afraid of dying and the truth is we're all dying of course so right. that seed fear that is so such a part of so many humans gets set off totally subconsciously but when you pick at it and pick at it and pick at it you're like oh i'm afraid of dying i'm afraid of the preciousness of life i didn't even realize this is a thing but that seems to be underneath especially when we're talking about parents and fears like i had someone who was like you know oh i i'm my kid wants to ride his bike to school 
and I don't want him to. I'm scared. What are you scared of? Well, that he'll fall get hit by a car and die. Yeah, that he'll get hit by a car and die. Okay, so we actually need to do so in Buddhism and Eastern philosophy. That's why we meditate on death. Right. Right, and bring it super close, as close as we can, to be really in touch with that. Can well, you tell me? Sorry, go ahead. Well, and I think too, you know, for children. When we look at the young children, child's mind, right? That more like pure mind, they haven't created stories of stories of stories of stories. They just haven't accumulated their baggage. Mm -hmm. Yet. Yet. I mean, there's no escape. But um, I, um, and it happens like this in parents too, but anxiety, because our nerves are jangled and because our attention doesn't know where to land, to fix it, right? Because the brain is a, is a problem solving organ. Yeah, yeah. So when we cannot solve this unease, we, the brain will go into overdrive to overcompensate. So we will control what we can control and we will suffocate the life out of things. So before I went to therapy and unpacked my anxiety, I, I was a perfectionist. I was overly controlling. You wouldn't have looked at my life and been like, wow, Megan's so tightly wound because I was like, haha, the life of the party, bullshit. But I was constantly five steps ahead. I was unable to enjoy a lot of things because I could never be in the moment. I could never let things unfold. And so what you see is many kids and many parents, either simultaneously, independently, one then the other, vice versa, are doing this. And you, and it manifests in just craziness. Yeah. And it is this anxiety that, and back to kind of this pervasive vulnerability that we can't, that we unconsciously block. Yeah. Because, yeah. Good times. Sorry, Claire, what were you going to ask me? Well, I was going to ask you is that you said earlier that you lived in a home or you grew up around undiagnosed anxious people. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that look like? What does that, what does that mean specifically? Like what are some of the patterns or behaviors or habits that you notice that leads you to that? So we can sort of think about our own experiences that again, may not have been DSM labeled, however, are still patterns, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so the way it looked in my house was an inability to enjoy the present moment. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Constant, but what about? But what about when? Mm -hmm. But what about when? But what about when? Which I actually really, really took on. Yes. Um, a pervasive feeling of, of uh, the sh other shoe is going to drop. Yes. And so to some extent, you know, people t toss this off as a cultural thing. So in different cultures, yeah. you know, Judaism has its own way of killing joy before it comes. Um, Christians of different stripes definitely are killers of joy of different stripes. Not all. I'm just saying that each religion each culture, each family has its own way of defending against vulnerability and joy. Um, 
but anxious people really like can do this at least it manifested that way and i as you know me plus do that um i'm i'm always looking out for what will go wrong and i'm profoundly annoyed by people that will think it will go right um i've come to like work with myself on this and maybe even see other people as not as annoying um but that's how it came to be in my house just a feeling of if it goes right that was lucky it is gonna go wrong um and so just wait for it so you can imagine that feeling of just wait for it <laughs> you know kind of just keeps you on this like on tender hooks of waiting for the bottom to fall out which is that that anxiety and in some ways anxiety for some people can look like it's going to be fine everything's great everything's going to be super. So there can be this complete erasure of the reality of failure, which is actually more of life than winning or, you know what I mean? Like neither of them mean much, but there's just generally more things that don't work than do day to day. So some people may have grown up with parents or in families where everything was super. So like there was death and mayhem and abuse and there were smiles mm -hmm. and there was, right? Both extremes hiding jangly nerves, both extremes hiding vulnerability, mm -hmm. acceptance of what is, that fear of not knowing, that fear of not being able to say the right thing, do the right thing, be the right person, which is kind of the deepest fear. So that's how it manifested for me. And I took that right on. I was a pro. I was a professional anxious person. I still am. I'm very good at anxiety. I win. Do you feel like you, okay, so let's talk a little bit and then I want to answer, I have two questions that came in that I want to make sure that we address, but I want to ask, like, what's your perspective about managing it versus curing versus living with it? Like, how do you see your current state and then also your clients? And I think you spoke about your medications, which have been super helpful, but I also know personally your um, silent retreat practice is really helpful or from what I've understood or watched or seen is that I notice that when you get start to kind of build up that having that silent retreat time is like a a nice valve like a pressure release for you um, yeah. and has been for a few years so can you talk a little bit about sort of like how you're living with it and parenting your kids and being married and a wonderful friend and what does that look like so I, 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 hmm, it's interesting. So when you're dealing with the work I deal with, which is helping parents of very young children, very young children who show anxious traits, mm -hmm. I don't use the word cure, but there is a great impact you can create in the, in the mind of a young child. You can undo a world of hurt. Mm -hmm. Not undo, you can choose another path which mitigates. So anxiety is the most hereditary of all the traits. Mm -hmm. More wow. than depression, 
more yeah. than anything. And you know why? Let me just say this from an Ayurvedic so I don't lose it, is that it's because it's hitting mind, body, spirit, and it's hitting, because energy is contagious and emotions are contagious, you have the physiological, physiobiology of anxiety, but then you also have the home environment, the story, and the lineage, and your- and to that- Right, any kind of trauma or experience. Totally. Or so it's, yes, of course it's gonna come up as most genetic or like hereditary because it's hitting all of the pieces. A lot of people hide depression and so they don't necessarily pass it to their kids if they've been hiding it because the kids haven't picked up on that energy as where the anxiety plays out in those stories and in the, the emotions outwardly. And so you can pick up on it. So that's what I, is so fascinating. Totally. And so I like to work with parents. I never say cure. I never say freed from. I, I just think that that sets everyone up for a standard that is just not true or real. And there's yes. so much of life we can't control. So I really like to just work with it as just what it is. I like to kind of say if like if the kid needed glasses, we would provide, you know, if the eyesight were struggling, we would do glasses. If you know, um, he needed more iron, we would give him more steak. It's kind of this idea of there is a need, let's meet it. Mm -hmm. Rather than this kind of pathologizing that it is this kind of thing that takes away from our character, right? Because anxiety is actually a superpower for me. And since I also parent an extraordinarily anxious 11-year-old who was born that way, and you could literally see it from jump, Mm-hmm. Um, we have to frame it that this is her superpower. We can't have her fight it. Um, yeah. because it's, it's helping myself has never been through fighting it. So I counsel, or I don't want to say counsel. I coach parents, myself, children, whomever to just see it for what it is. Thank it. It is a part of our brain that is desperately trying to protect us mm-hmm. from real, and this is extraordinarily important, and perceived dangers. Mm-hmm. Perceived being very important. Um, and different strategies work for different people. Yep. And so for me, it's meds for now, we'll see. Um, it's mm, uh, meditation, exercise, food, try not to drink, Try not to eat too much shit, getting a lot of sleep, um, not self-isolating, all the things, right? And I think what's frustrating about anxiety is that if you open a magazine on a doctor's stand, all the data points to exercise, sleep, and food, exercise, sleep, and food, and it's true. And, but <laughs> it just becomes such a toss-off. And there are some people that are struggling so badly. And so I always just want to open all the options to people mm-hmm. and not shame anything. You want to go to neurofeedback? Go to neurofeedback. You want to do CBT? Go to CBT. You want to go to DBT? Go to DBT, right? Because if you were born anxious and then you have trauma, these are deep grooves in your brain that aren't going to be fixed with a breathing exercise. You may need more work. Not that the breathing exercise won't work in a moment, but you know, if what fires together wires together and you started wiring together anxiety and trauma from the minute you were born, 
That's a lot of love and support. That brain is so deeply conditioned on those grooves that you have to offer that brain a lot of love, like a lot of love. Mm -hmm. So I like to just put everything on the table like a poo-poo platter mm -hmm. and say, let's experiment. Mm -hmm. You got to give everything long enough to see if it works. Yeah. And long enough is different for different people. Sometimes it's three months, sometimes it's six months, sometimes it's three sessions. I mean, there's not one. Well, and I also say forward progress doesn't look like a steady march up a hill. You know, you can have peaks and valleys, but I'm always asking parents to let's look at the trajectory. And even myself, because I parent an anxious kid, and when we're in a valley, our, my brain is like, well, she's always going to be like this. What's she going to become? I failed. But, but, right. I have to force myself to look backward and say, where have we come from? Right. Where are we? Where are we really? Yeah. Right. In the present moment. Since you said right. that that was such a hard piece for. Um, and it's important to see where you've, where you've gotten. Of course. And it's also an important way to say, you know what, this strategy that every single magazine on the doctor's office says works for everyone doesn't work for me. And so, you know, there is a lot of shame out there mm. about people needing medication. Yeah. People needing more than the average bear. Well, let's say, let's, I mean, let's be very clear that the, the culture, the yoga culture that we're living in says that yoga will fix it and be the cure for all and the one stop and blah, blah, that really came out of the yoga world. And um, one of the things that I really notice is that, and it's what you were talking about, is that for breathing, actually, there are some breathing practices that are really contraindicated for anxiety. Yes, I'm activating. If you're in a class and there's 50 people and a 20 year old teacher who just graduated from teacher training because the studios need to pay rent. So they're just pushing out teachers. They don't understand that this is a holistic system of wellness and well-being that was originally taught to be one-on-one, -on -one, that it is not appropriate to be doing high levels of breathing practices to crowded rooms when you have no idea where they're coming from. Like and Kalabati breathing, like skull yeah. shining and stuff. High, right? Highly, highly activating. It totally depends on the person. Some right. people have a lot of vata. They can really use that. It strengthens their pitta and some people right. need to strengthen pitta. So one-on-one right. -on -one you can tell, but you can tell by looking at the person, talking with them, is this something that's going to be lifting them up higher or bringing them down to earth? And this is a big thing, especially if there's an entire lineage of yoga called kundalini which is all about rising that and lifting and then floating around and having it all be um sort of up here versus like many of us need to be in this realm <laughs> like on this earth present in our lives for our kids for our marriages for our friendships not so much in our thoughts <laughs> and which our I think you, you make a really interesting point because, you know, I've mostly studied with Jill, who you know, Jill Miniman, mm -hmm. who's like super, super, super knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. And she's always asking, okay, we're doing this. How do you feel? She goes, That's some of that. you yeah. may yeah. feel blank and some of you. Simply asking that. Yeah. And practicing asking that of ourselves. 
It's the question we start in Ayurveda every day with. How can I nourish myself? How does this feel? Kabbal, that's why I won't answer, say Kabbalah Bhati is good or bad. It depends on the person and how it has them feel. But you have to be able to have that dialogue. And that's what I want to get at with anxiety is that I think one of the reasons why I want to have these conversations is to really open up any shame or any idea that we will cure it or that it will be fixed and really approaching it from the sensitivity superpower gift appreciation side where we're like wow this is really sort of like what i'm made of and here's all the ways it works for me and here's what i notice when it when it doesn't feel like it's working for me <laughs> right like when it feels like it's suffocating me or yes. it's over my life what do i do and in ayurveda that's a vata imbalance and then we use strategies to balance vata and they're very very of this earth right rubbing the feet with oil making sure that we're staying warm enough, literally physically warm enough, drinking warm water, having a little bit of something in our stomach because vatas tend to forget to eat, which for my kapha is like, I can't believe anyone would forget to eat. But when you're in a vata state, your anxiety is so high that your digestive system shuts off because it's trying to save you and, and, and prioritize your well-being yeah. over your hunger. So of course you forget to eat when you're in that anxious state. But then it's creating more vata. So I love those layers of it is just understanding how we work and then um, letting all of these things be helpful. Medication, doctors, conversations, practices, without shaming any parts of how we're trying to heal ourselves. Well, and I'd like to, and something, you know, that I've been friends with you for a while and something that you talk about, which I really appreciate, which... I try to bring to my clients in my own life is the idea of seasonality yeah and the idea of and i say to parents no matter what we're talking about no matter what it is is that this isn't going to be forever like this mm -hmm. oh, right even, if, yeah, even right. if it's like a permanent disability let's say mm -hmm. it's still not going to be like this everything has a beginning middle and an end and so let's let's see what we're going to try. Yeah. Right. And the strategies that work now stop working. And when I've given myself that freedom with my own anxiety and my own body, my own life and my own mind, you just find a lot of like room and space to stop because there's, I don't think there's anything more dangerous than a fixing model, mm. a perpetual fixing model especially parent to child, if the parent is prone toward anxiety, as I am, and then you see anxiety in your child, as I did, now we have anxious energy meeting anxious energy. And now everyone is like humming at this level of craziness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you're, no human wants to feel like a project. Mm -mm. You just want to be seen and accepted for where and who you are right now. That doesn't mean that there aren't things to be worked on and addressed and helped and supported, but it's the difference of like, you're not enough. We're not there yet. It's never enough. There's always the next thing. Just this endless feeling of, of you're broken. And, and that can really happen quickly in the Western world, in the Western medicine, 
But then the Eastern world can give you the mind fuck, sorry, of, um, well, it's just, you know, you just need, I, there's this funny thing, right? Because in Western, it's like, we just need another medicine. We just need another, right? And then the Eastern is, there's this thing, at least for me, of you're not trying hard enough. If you're meditating harder, if you were, like, there is a willpower issue sometimes in the yoga world, especially that can be equally damaging, right? You're just, you're just not, you're not enlightened enough. You're not, you know? Okay, so this is actually really fascinating because it's one of the reasons why I am turning towards Ayurveda and turning away from the yoga model. It's one of the reasons why I turned away from Zen Buddhism and turned towards my own intuitive practice. There are lineages within Eastern philosophy currently that are enforcing that. There are lineages that are very masculine that continue to say there is one way. Ashtanga is a series of poses that you do this way and you spend your whole practice doing it this way. Zen Buddhism tells you to wear black, turn around and face the wall and that yeah. is what you do. And that is good, that's, that's identified as good. My soul in those two environments felt suffocated, my feminine soul felt suffocated, trapped, and like it was creating a level of com competition and striving that I already had. Right. So it was feeding, from an Ayurvedic perspective, they were pitta practices feeding a pitta dominant person. And that is not a good combination because that will perpetuate never enough. So in the past five years specifically, I have turned towards Ayurveda and turned towards intuition and turned towards embodiment movement practice, not a rigid system. And I've never felt more fully like myself right. because I have a lot of pitta in my constitution. It's how I made. That's why I get shit done. That's why I have a right. podcast that comes out every week. Like I have a lot of natural energy that right. gets stuff done. So for me to be part of an Eastern practice that continues to perpetuate that is very unhealthy for my body. And so my turning towards Ayurveda, which is a feminine approach to wholeness and wellness, that is all accepting. There's not one way. You can't ever do it wrong. Right. Um, that's why it like changed my entire, oh my God, like I felt so whole and alive and excited. Right. And I'm like an evangelist because for me, that was, that's what was happening, Meg, in my Eastern traditions. Of course, I was attracted to things that told me how to do it. Right. Because that's what I had always done. So right. that's the, that balancing piece. And yes, there are a lot of practices right now and communities that are continuing to perpetuate the good enough model. You're never good enough. You're trying to get here once you get here. It's so funny because in Shambhala, they even realized like when they created their curriculum and they got to like level three, they were like, okay, after you finish level three, you should go back and do level one again. <laughs> What's that like Scientology shit right there? Totally. It's just like that where they're like, we keep put, trying to like perpetuate curriculum. It's just fascinating. It's none of this is right or wrong. It's right. all fascinating layers of like, when you ask the questions, what do you notice? And mine, like, I don't tend towards anxiety. Um, I lean, I have more kapha, so I lean more towards the depression and the sort of manic depression. And I think that for me, what I've noticed is that in my healthiest state, 
that mania or that, that manic state is what allows me to produce and live and be very energized in that healthy state. It can also go to the unhealthy state of overdoing or over striving. So um, that's why I don't think any of these things are ever cured. And so I, I want people to sort of pull that apart as even a thing that could happen and more see it as like, how is this dynamically flowing in this season? How does it feel? You know? And I, you know, and it's funny, like Zen for me, right? Facing the wall is like an exhale. It is right. So if you are a jangly nerved person, if you literally think of it physically, the eyes darting, the, the breath quickening, the sweating, the stomach hurting, right? Um, lack of sleep, lack of, right? There's this feeling, right? Facing the wall, while at first anxiety producing, because it can feel like suffocating, mm. right? Um, eventually, your mind goes, okay, well, here I am. Yeah, here I am. And you just release into it. And because the anxious person can tend toward controllingness, perfectionism, Mm. right? You want them on your committee until you don't, right? And an anxious person can also look frozen right, um, by their inability to decide or know what to do. So, you know, for me, facing the wall and having it be a very singular practice, I'm just utterly alone in it, is um, the most free I've felt being alive. Yeah. Um, because I, I don't, can't really remember back to a time where I wasn't concerned with somebody else's welfare. Mm-hmm. Which again, when it's good, it has made me a great teacher. Of makes course. Me a great coach. Makes yeah. me great, right? Yeah. Powers like this idea of alpha. And when it's bad, it is, I mean, crippling. Yeah. Well, and I think, okay, well, this is another point that I actually really want to make is for people who are listening. So there is a, um, we are living in a world where meditation rules in terms of this is a good thing that everybody should do. And which is really annoying because it's not, but anyway. (laughs) Well, this is my point is that if you are currently suffering from anxiety or depression and you are thinking about you know, facing a wall or joining a class of silence without professional help, it can be very dangerous. And I have seen this play out numerous times where people thought they were doing it to take good care of themselves and it created so much more suffering and disease and anxiety that was very scary and debilitating. And so I just want to say that Meg and I are not saying anybody should do anything No, <laughs> they think is right, that it's very important for you to um, have support and understand how you're built and that just because you may or may not be meditating, it doesn't make you a good or bad person. And I even would like to stress that just from my own story, I never sought it out. Not once. I met 
my teacher by accident. I didn't look for meditation. I didn't, I wasn't interested in sitting. Yeah. I didn't want this for my life. Yeah. I'm not a very introspective person. Yeah. I'm not like, I'm not a seeker. I'm not a, let's try this, let's try that. I'm not that interested in that stuff. Yeah. Um, I'd rather watch TV. Yeah. And so for me, it was a, a lightning bolt yeah. of what hit me. Um, that, that was it, you know? Um, and so I just see I, a lot of irresponsible teachers right now. You know, okay, let's be quiet. Let's do this. Let's do that. Again, without not knowing people's background. I've been in too many rooms lately. Well, see, but I, Plez, I disagree in some ways, right? So because let's say you join a tradition, right? That's that tradition. They don't need to change for anyone. You come to that tradition. They do their thing. You come or go. Yeah. Now, but then let's say you go on a retreat and it's not a formalized tradition, then I do think you're right that it is beholden on these teachers or instructors to, I mean, all teachers and instructors should be in some ways explaining what's happening, right? But if you join like a super highly formalized Zen tradition, for instance, then, you know, that's for you or not. Right, like there, that's, it's like going to, you know, different churches, different temples, different, right? And so for people who are anxious, you may not even know you're anxious. That's my point. So if you go and you have a spike in anxiety, look at that. Did, did you come through it? And did, were you better for the spike? Does it happen every time you go? Because the problem isn't always that you feel anxious. It's like, okay, well, what came out of it? Or how do, how do I see this? Right? So for certain people beginning, if you know yourself very well, then great. You can go out and try things. If you're in, you don't even know you're anxious, you just think that this is how people are and how you are and, and you're miserable in yoga and you're miserable in meditation and you're miserable that is when you need to step back and like journal, take a walk, look at it. What are your thoughts and feelings at this time? Right? Um, is, it, is it the practice? Is it you? Is it both? Right? Because they're all just tools and we're all just coming to them. Right? And, and uh, you know, it's really complicated as the world tries to meld this Eastern and Western and we fumble around with it. We're gonna have to figure out and keep kind of, especially pointing to our kids, saying, well, how is this working for you? How is this working for you? Yes, I know this is an empirically tested strategy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That shows results with 85% of kids that work do this strategy with anxiety. How's it working for you? Yeah. Some of our kids are gifted. Some of our kids have IQ issues. Some of our kids have learning disabilities. Plus that 
some of our kids have learning disabilities and comorbid anxiety. Some of our kids have learning disabilities and anxiety that results from it. Some of our kids, I mean, I, that's what I agree. That's, I totally agree. My point is just on the, on the prescription is that what I'm saying is that one size does not fit all like everything. Never. And that no. meditation does not mean does a meditation practice right now in the current climate um, is not necessarily a great fit for everybody with a lot of unresolved trauma or pain. And people come to me every day saying, I should meditate. Everybody else is doing it. I heard this will work. And my point is that I want people to deeply understand that it may or may not be true. And I think a lot of people don't know anything about lineage. They actually don't know anything about what they're getting themselves in for in certain, in, in a variety of circumstances. And that I just want to be very responsible um, with the language around, I just don't know that that's true or not true. And I'm not claiming that it is or it isn't for anybody. Right. That's because it is such a part of mainstream culture and people are shooting on themselves that they should do it. They're right. up for things that they don't understand. And I'm just asking people to really do a little bit more homework. And, and I feel very responsible as a professional to, to speak this. Because yeah. I've, been, I've been in many communities, in many situations, in many rooms over the past five years where the professional is not communicating that. The professional is saying, this is what we do. This is how we do it. And, you, and if you don't do it this way, you're like, this is how we do it. So get in line. Right. And that is what I'm not okay with from a professional standpoint. I believe it's just like I feel about the yoga world, having teachers come into classrooms and say, I'm your facilitator. Here's some shapes. Some of them may not feel awesome in your body. So try this versus I've been in yoga rooms where people are pulling people up into bridge who recently had babies, right? That's like a really big opening of the stomach. So I am holding my professional colleagues to a higher level of yeah. depth and conversation because main, because all this stuff has moved into mainstream. Yeah. No. And it's like, you know, it's the nineties version or it's like the five years version of like a blueberry will help everything and totally. green okay. tea will help everything yeah. and green, you know, green juice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just another thing. That's my point is like, let's just elevate that conversation a little bit and not just be like, everybody should do this. And I, yeah. And we are, we are in the Western world. Our, our culture is, you know, our best practices are Western. Um, and a lot of them work for a lot of people. A lot of the, the, a lot of the tools work for a lot of people. I will say that um, the ability, especially for children and adults, but especially for children to feel at peace with their mind and move forward in this world is your relationship to your support system. So when I took my daughter to therapy after she asked for it in fourth grade, it was her relationship with her therapist that, that helped heal her mm -hmm. from the strife she felt about feeling anxious. Mm -hmm. It was like the anxiety was hard, but it was the secondary guilt and shame of being anxious that she had to mm -hmm. come to peace with, which of course I relate to. Yeah, right.
Um, so beautiful. But it was her relationship to that therapist and counselor. Yeah. Right. And so kind of like what you're saying, if your relationship to your facilitator, your teacher, if your relationship to your yoga teacher, if your relationship to your Ayurvedic um, facilitator and instructor and leader, if your relationship to your coach, whomever doesn't feel good, true, loving, yep. supportive, boundaried, um, if they're not using best practices, if they're not, if they're, you know, that is kind of where the healing happens because you can have highly skilled people. <laughs> I mean, they're just like, or they're not even stuck. I'm being facetious there, but there's not the click. Yeah. Well, you have two great people, people. haven't seen these as relationships, right? So like, because you're even using that language around these are relationships that we're in, it gives it like a deeper meaning than just pop, hopping around from place to place to fix me, fix me, or fix my kid, fix my kid, or fix this. Right. More to it. And that takes, that's sacred feminine because it takes more time and it's more unknown. Like masculine wants to just be like, but I took it to one doctor and they fixed it and checked the box. Right. And I have these set of, right. I have this set of suffering. I have this yeah. set of um, symptoms. Yeah. And so give me the tools and I'll fix the symptoms. But yeah. for humans and especially for children, the healing happens in the trust and the trust happens in a relationship. Yep. Yep. And it doesn't need to be perfect. The therapist doesn't need to be perfect. No. The parent doesn't, like there's no, nobody has to measure up to a perfect ideal, but everyone knows if it clicks or if it doesn't. A couple of people don't because they're that far outside themselves mm -hmm. uh, or buried. But, you know, largely, I also think it's important with anxiety, just to kind of round this out, because if parents are listening is that depending on the level of anxiety, and this is for adults too, you can find a correlation in immaturity. Um, and so the more anxious the child, they can have an extraordinarily high IQ, but you'll also see sometimes an inability to deal emotionally because mm. the brain is working so hard to block things. So if the brain is actually working that hard to block things, it doesn't allow you to uh, grow. Um, an analogy that Dr. Neufeld uses, which I find very um, illustrative, is that if you're in an airport waiting for a plane to land and you're reading a New Yorker article, which if you've read one lately, there's like so many words per sentence. It's like, wow, okay, this is not a listicle I can click away from. If you're reading a New Yorker and you're waiting for the plane and it's late and it's not coming and it's not coming and it's not coming, and you start, you start to get anxious, worried because now you have a specific worry um you cannot actually focus on the article you can read the words and you will not take in what it said mm. and as it gets later your in your inability to take in other sensory material and hold it is compromised and so for children in a chronic state of anxiety their ability to take in things and hold it and their ability to grow emotionally to take on other people's perspectives to hold other people's concerns in their mind is compromised and so you see more tantrums 
more immature thinking, more immature behaviors. Um, and, and it's really upsetting because of course in our culture, we're like, but you're nine, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to do, you're supposed to have mm -hmm. a set of uh, emotional skills. But the more anxious, the more black and white thinking you have. Mm -hmm. Because that feels safe for the brain and the brain is literally doing its best. Job. And, and trying to protect you, right? So the, I think about this too in terms of teaching in Southeast is like, this why this is so layered in terms of learning in schools and environments where there's high levels of anxiety. And if the kids are super sensitive to what's happening around them and tuning into it, of course they're coming in um, you know, again, I'll just, from my experience at the time when I was teaching, I taught in a neighborhood specifically that had, was very high stress. Um, and so it was the transition from the beginning of the day to the end of the day was really challenging. The emotional maturity, the fat, the learning, the, the being able for things to stick. I didn't know anything about brain science and learning when I was that, when I was teaching, we weren't talking about it in the school room. We definitely no. weren't talking about it in urban ed. I no. still sort of feel like we're not talking about an urban ed, just in more <laughs> uh, socioeconomic, high socioeconomic neighborhoods and doing brain and growth mindset. We're doing it at our kids' school, but are we doing it? I, I just, I don't know because I don't spend enough time in, in those communities anymore. But gosh, I think about that all the time is the stuff I saw every day was not you know, one baby or the other baby trying to be an ass or trying not to learn. There was just so many other stressors going on for that, that little body in that little system. So I, I'm really excited about where we're going in the field of anxiety and depression. And even I would put learning disabilities in, in challenges in, or differences in here too, because we're learning so much more about the ways that we all are so different and wired differently and are starting to really pick at some of these things that people have been so ashamed about, right? And like, it's such an interesting time to see the intersection of the research matching the more humanistic view. Those of us who've been studying holistic health are like, duh, but it's right. now coming into, into the research. Um, okay, let's answer this one question. Maybe two, I'm gonna look up this other one, but Okay, so here a parent said, my inherent anxiety and fear about my daughters moving through the world um, on their own feels to them like a lack of trust in them. How do I and we, with my kids, find the right balance in terms of expectations and communication and, and them wanting to roam three? Um, scary things happened to me as a kid and a friend of mine at work lost his two sons in a car accident. My kids are really great and confident and have no idea how much I'm giving them way more freedom than I feel I can bear. Uh-huh. Uh, how old are the kids? Um, freshmen in high school. Oh, shit. Yeah, okay. Well, so, maybe talk about the different stages too. I know lots of parents feel this yeah, way. It's, it's terrifying. I think we can normalize our, our fears um, because we're given, I, you know, I opened my email today and somebody put on the listserv that some kid was just tried to be kidnapped. Yeah, I saw that in Georgetown. And I got really mad about it after I got over my fear because I'm like, where is this? What's like, what is the context? Which is essentially what happens to our brain. So let's say you're traumatized when you're young. So dink, okay, you have that ding in your... <laughs> 
that's happened. Mm -hmm. And then you are now surrounded by a 24 seven news cycle that tells you we are on the brink of death, right? You, your child is going to overdose on an opioid. You right, just pick, pick whatever's going wrong, right? Even the most sensible non-anxious person will start to feel charged, right? Because we, we think we want to know what's happening in the world, but we kind of don't. Um, and so if you add to your already basically anxious mind, I don't know if she was born anxious, but then she had some trauma growing up. Now she has children, she has to let them out. So now she's facing their mortality. Then she's re-triggered by a horrific trauma at work, right? So that you have to forgive yourself and, and say, brain, I get you, thank you. Of course you don't want anything to happen to your daughter. Of course, you, we don't want anything, right? There has to be, and I think with a freshman, you can say it aloud to your kid. Mm. You can say, I know how capable you are, but listen, this is my mind. So let's develop something so that you text me when you get there or you, or, or we, let's do baby things so I can get there. Right, so that your child is, you're not passing on to your child the craziness you have while you also still respect and you don't ignore and punish this interior voice. Right, there's this idea of the kid knows you're anxious, like the kid knows that you are unreasonable or un, unrealistic or putting out this energy. So let's give words to it. And let's be honest with the child. Yeah. Let's say, you know, when I was growing up, either this happened to me or this didn't happen to me. But you can have anxiety about that somebody didn't take care of you, that you were on your own, that life wasn't safe for you, right? And you can say, this is where I'm coming from. This is my perspective. Here's the reality. My brain is trying to mesh the two and it doesn't know what to do. It isn't about you, sweetheart. Well, it's a little bit about you, yeah. right? So yeah. <laughs> just give it some room. Yeah. Because teens, especially freshmen, unless you, know, you have a horrible relationship with them, they'll be like, oh, I get it, mom. They really will offer a lot of love and sympathy. You know, our kids today are way more emotionally versed than we ever were at that age. Yeah, right. Most of them, not all. Right. You know, so giving it room and then listen, I mean, I'm always telling people to go to therapy, but go to therapy, like speak this to somebody who is a safe container. We have to take the interior and move it outside. Everyone says to journal. I don't fucking journal. I've never journaled a day in my life. I find it dull or I don't, I just don't. So if you can journal, journal. If you can speak into a voice memo on your phone, like all of the garbage, all of the crazy, all of the, all the things that don't make sense, all the irrational, like move the interior out. Move it out. And if that means it's there. I just also want to say that because you're a writer, you're actually already doing that. It's probably why journaling, a lot of writers don't journal because they're already doing that processing in their writing. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. They're you're, actually well, doing it. They just, they don't, they don't like put it, but put it at the bottom. It's very funny because there's this, it's like, yeah, but you already do that because you already get to process and think through 
and share that with your column and the writing that you've been doing this year. And I've always just chalked it up to like, I don't feel like writing anymore. Well, of course you don't, because you do it for your living. So like, I don't really, yeah, it's the same. It's, it's very similar, but I just want to process, say that I, like you are actually doing it out. It's just not in that container of something you call that has Interesting. done for you. So you, you know, yeah, that same process. That's so important. Um, yeah, and I just, I would wrap it up with asking for your child's empathy. Just saying, listen, I'm new at parenting a freshman in high school. I'm, I'm, I'm letting out the leash here, but it makes me a little nervous. Mm -hmm. You know, it, I, I'm new at this. Yeah. Because I haven't met a parent that's fully secure in these decisions. Yeah, because every year is a new year, you've never done it, and the minute you think you get it, then they change seasons. I mean, that's, it's the reality of the ever-changing, ever-evolving life is that nobody knows what they're doing, nobody has ever done, you, you know, parented a freshman in high school, an eighth grader and a sixth grader, like everyone, oh, you mean there is, that, that's why there can't be a perfect. Because right. we don't actually ever master the stage that we're in because it's always changing, because then a parent gets sick. Or then our husbands lose our job, lose their job. Like there's just all of these things that are always in motion. That's the nature of being human and alive. So yeah, the most important thing with our kids is to lay the responsibility where it lies with, which is within ourselves. That doesn't mean yeah. blaming language. That just means being very cognizant of saying to the child, this isn't you. Mm -hmm. because so many of us that grow up anxious or depressed, it is because we had an adult that couldn't turn to us and say, this isn't about you. Mm -hmm. This is in me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yes. yes. Yeah. I love And that. even if it is your child who's making you anxious, you still don't say that to them. You still don't say, Hey, listen, I'm parenting you and you drive me crazy yeah, right. and I'm anxious and have a disorder because of you. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, if, if this has been a pervasive issue for her, yeah, right. if it is affecting all the domains of her life, if it is getting worse and not better, if she's done all the things, if she's done all the meditation and all, right, go, to, go to call your doctor, just call your doctor. Cause we need people to call their doctors and say, I, I think I'm anxious, I need a name. Not to, not to a psychiatrist necessarily the jump to meds, but I, get the ball rolling to give yourself the support you always deserved. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. We all- I go to, I don't have a doctor, so I go to my friends who are the experts. Like I reach out to you about anxiety because we've talked about you doing it, you having it and experiencing it. So the doctor can be one person, but you may also have experts in your life who you can reach out to and practice that same level of vulnerability. Like, hey, I know you, like I'm looking at homeschooling options. So right now I'm having a lot of conversations with people who homeschool, right? Like it's that same thing. I'm like, let me just actually talk to people and start to listen to what feels right to me because it's that support and the action around it that helps break the cycle. 
immediately. No. That's what's so powerful. That's a positive intervention that's coming in. And even if it doesn't result to anything, like I may not homeschool, but I'm learning a lot about it and listening to people's lives enough to give me a little bit more information. And the point is, is it pulls it out of your yes. ruminating right. mind. And into that's the world. Action, right. action. Nothing good happens in there. Can you talk, just to wrap up, because I'm mindful of time, um, can you... Um, you said your, your column today was about technology. Was there anything that you feel like people should know related to anxiety and technology? Oh, God. Is that oh. a whole different episode? No. I mean, the long and the short of it is we don't really know. You know, neuroscience is a baby science. Like <laughs> you and I were saying when we went out as teachers, like we didn't know X. 20 years later, now we know why. God knows what we'll see in 20 years. So all we're working with is what we know now. Yeah. Um, and then if you take neuroscience, then you layer technology on top of it. It's still a baby science. Um, we still don't know, but what we're seeing is this, the extraordinary activation of the reward centers in the brains. Um, mostly when it comes to gaming. And so, um, if your child has executive functioning issues of any type and they're serious gamers, they are overactivated in their brains, which essentially means that they never come to rest. Mm -hmm. And this can lead to, which is why when parents take their kids off of hours of tech, you see this almost speed up mania. They almost can't mm -hmm. function. Mm -hmm. You see, it's a complete like dropout of their maturity. Mm -hmm. They tantrum and they, um, and so, does it cause anxiety? I don't, the science doesn't point toward tech causing anxiety yeah. as much as it exacerbates other issues. Yeah. And then from there it unfolds. Yeah. If you have an anxious child, social media is kind of yeah. not great, but it also can be used for good. Yeah. Well, how can it be used for good? Just share with people who might think it's all negative all the time. Well, you know, um, the beautiful thing is now we can see everyone in the world who has something like we do. Yeah. And there's groups of anxious kids who meet online, and groups of anxious teens and groups of anxious mothers. And um, if you have a brain that's seeking connection, community and belonging, <laughs> that will give you hope yeah. and community. And if your brain is like, I'm jacked up and so are they it will be used to feed. So circling back around Pleasance to what you're saying is, whether it's meditation, journaling, online, eating, exercising, I mean, sleep is kind of like mandatory, but everything else is kind of, how is this making me feel over, not just over a week, because you and I both know people try shit for a week. Like Ayurveda is not a week, you know? so. After you give yourself some time, how is this feeding me? How is this, right? How is it? So asking a friend to check in with you, putting an alert in your phone, something that springs you from out of it. Is this feeding me? Right? Is this, is this lowering my anxiety or is it heightening it? Or is it doing nothing? Is it just wasting time? So that is where tech comes in. It's a beautiful tool, but it'll, it will just use it to hurt ourselves mm -hmm. if we're not awake.
Um, okay, tell people where they can find you. Do you have, what are you offering right now that might be of service to someone who wants to work with you a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more about your coaching? Oh, um, I'm like, I don't know. Um, so mlparentcoach.com. I'm going to be starting an online class with coaching at the end of February. That's not out yet, but just, you know, go sign up for the email if you want to be clued in. parents of ages. What like two, um, it's for parents of neurotypical kids, two to 10. Okay. Um, and I just say neurotypical because that's, it's important to, to that you get the right type of advice and help. Um, I have a column. I have two spots for coaching. If you go online, you can um, get my email there. And yeah, the weekly column. That's it. I'll have a book out by the time I'm like 85. Um, so you guys can read it in about 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> or not. We'll see. <laughs> I can't Anxiety. <laughs> see, there it is. Here it is in real life. <laughs> oh friend yeah my yeah anyone who's married to an anxious person or good friends they they see it and they just have to deal it's tiring but yeah. <laughs> um thank you so much as usual for bringing your brilliance and your perspective and your voice to this conversation i think it's super super wonderful and magical to have a time when we can do this and share this with people because I think stories really do help us. I mean, well, and I want to thank you for really doing your best to and giving your greatest effort toward combining all of your knowledge and experience with what's happening really today for people, which is all we have to free themselves from just one way. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think that that is a very needed voice right now. So thank you because generally you and I both know things point to one way. Yeah. And that's why I like having friends who have different opinions and see it differently. And I think it's so valuable for people to see that you and I are not built the same. We're not wired the same. We don't always believe the same things. And it's so, it's, and it's all good. It's okay. In fact, it's more than okay because we're not just um, building those neural networks to keep producing what we think is right. No. Yeah. Right. We're not each other's echo chamber. Right. right. And right. that's really valuable when we're learning because I think a lot of people believe there's one way and they're told it and then they are trying to attain that and then it's not that helpful. So I think having this kind of conversation with where people can really see how our lives play out so differently and how we work with them. But and I will say too, the anxious mind is desperate for one way. So that's just a layer for people to know when they're listening to this, if they're feeling frustrated with our conversation, the anxious mind says, but, 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 right. So if you hear something today that sparks your interest or makes you angry, you know, reach out to Pleasant Eye to clarify, you know, what it is that's in your mind um, so that, you know, we don't want to cause purposeful frustration, but that is often the result of not knowing. Yeah. And the embodiment, I mean, I think the biggest thing that has been coming up with my clients, especially in Vata season, which is right now where it's so cold and dry, is embodiment. So do whatever you can to get warm in your body and like deep belly breathing, deep breathing on your belly, 
it, next to a heater to feel the rest of your body because that vata and that anxiety is so head-based. And then we're just walking around thinking that's everything. So the embodiment practice right now is really important. And that could, in, wherever you're listening from, you might have a dance class where it feels just really, you know, you just can close off all the thinking and the thoughts for a minute. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even saying you could do that the whole class. It's just like a minute of it to give yourself a break because yeah. if you're beating yourself up and wanting to know one way, that's still perpetuating that the mind is dominant. And this mind-body integration, um, it are skills that you can that you can practice, but they're very simple in terms of just dropping into the belly putting on your belly and just taking a few, not like take three deep breaths and then you'll be calm. But I want, just feel your body. Like she has so much to give you and offer you. And teach Girl, we have to do a whole nother podcast on, on the simplicity of true practices yes. oh, and how it has gotten so jacked up into multi-level kookiness, spreadsheets and PowerPoints of even more mind to take it to your body. Unbelievable. Or even the whole idea of a 90 minute class. Like it's so much more simple than that. Uh, it can be, and can be. that can be a real gift to your daily life. So yeah, we'll do, we'll definitely do that. And any other topics you guys know that you want us to jam on, just send to us and we'll do that. I love you. I love you. I love you. Have a warm embodied day. Oh. Just listening to you. I'm going to go get in the bath. <laughs> Oh, yes, that's my favorite. Okay, love you. Bye. <laughs> love you too. Bye.